Okay. Uh, if you would this morning, please turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, Jeremiah in your Old Testament. When you get to the prophets after the Psalms and the other poetic writings, you come to Isaiah and then to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22, we will be looking at this morning. But this is week 24 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And so, what we're doing this morning in the way God has constructed the world and His salvific history is we'll be looking at the 400 years of the kings reigning in Israel and in Judah. But along with that, the ministry of the prophets during this period. And we're going to do it mainly by looking at this particular prophetic section of the Jeremiah this morning. But before we do, the question is that I want you to ask yourself is how do you fit into this history? How do you fit into this prophetic utterance and the fulfillment of it that was given 2,600 years ago by Jeremiah that God would raise up a righteous son of David to sit on his throne and to rule with all power and all authority forever and ever. Are you with this king? Or are you against him? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, my prayer is that no soul in this room or within the sound of my voice would die without entering into the kingdom, the saving rule of your Son. Oh Jesus, you are the Savior, you are the sanctifier, the lover of the souls of all whom you went to the cross to grab. And so we say, do your work through your holy word this morning. Amen. So let's get the context of <clears throat> redemptive history, where we've been. In the year 1051 B.C., first king of Israel, Saul, began to reign. Forty years later, David became king and reigned. And last week, we saw the promise or the covenant that God made with King David when he said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever and ever. But then David dies, his son Solomon becomes king of Israel. And then it starts to feel like it's unraveling in history. It feels like the promise is in jeopardy. 
Because Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was a knucklehead, and God splits the kingdom into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which would later just be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which will be called Judah, and David's line will be reigning over the smaller southern kingdom of Judah. And then throughout their history of the kings, the idolatry and the disobedience of the people and of their rulers continually cause the threat of God's judgment to come upon the northern kingdom and upon the southern kingdom. And remember, at the first inauguration of the first king, Samuel the prophet declared, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so for centuries in Israel's history, there was this tension. The tension between the promise that God made to David of establishing His kingdom forever and ever and ever in righteousness. And the prophets who are the mouth of God declaring, if you don't repent, I'm going to tear the kingdom down and scatter you, my people. And the men who had the job and the responsibility for keeping that tension alive during that 400 period keeping it before the eyes of the people of Israel were called the prophets. The ministry of the prophets was a calling upon which the Holy Spirit would speak through them and tell them what to say. And their life, for the most part, was pretty miserable because usually they're saying negative things and when you do that, people don't like you. Particularly where we're going to go this morning. Jeremiah. The ministry of the prophets was this constant reminder to the people of Israel and to the kings of Israel and of Judah that God still owns the world. He still controls history and He still has a special claim on the people of Israel. And He still expects obedience from them. The message of the prophets during this period as a whole was threefold. Commands, warnings, and promises. Constant commands to forsake evil, repent, and follow the Lord. Constant warnings that if you don't, judgment is coming. And constant promises of hope which God meant and knew He would absolutely bring about. Fulfilling the promise that He made to Abraham and that He made to Abraham's descendant David. There's hope and there will be a righteous eternal kingdom. This is the flow in summary of the prophetic ministries during these centuries. So just in order to, 
to get a flavor of it. Some of you have probably never read the prophets. Some of you younger, particularly, may not have. And what does this mean? How does this dynamic work during this period of history? To get a flavor of that, that's why we're turning now to Jeremiah chapter 22. And we'll start with verse 1, but let me give a little backdrop. Jeremiah was born in the year 627 B.C. So you're already 300 to 350 years after the promise to David. Jeremiah is born, and his ministry, his prophetic ministry, was to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been judged and wiped out and taken off into exile. And Jeremiah prophesied during the last five kings of Judah. You remember Josiah. He was a good king. He found the Bible <laughs> in the temple. He found the Torah, the law, and, and he brought reform to the nation as a king to get back to God's word. But then after him, the next four kings were not good. And so what we have here in Jeremiah chapter 22 are a collection of oracles which he spoke from the Lord against these bad kings of Judah. And that warning then is followed up as you go into chapter 23 again with this glorious hope of the future. A king is coming. So let's start in chapter 22, verse 1, to get a flavor of this through the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter the gates. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house Kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like a summit of Lebanon, yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations 
will pass by this city of Jerusalem. And every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, It's because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Let's stop there for a moment. So first, what we see in these verses, that God through Jeremiah tells what He expects from the kings that sit on David's throne. Let righteousness, let justice rule. Help those who are oppressed. And you must never take advantage of the most vulnerable among you. The refugee, the orphan, and the widow. And then Jeremiah repeats what I said earlier, this tension throughout. In verse 4, if you obey, then kings will go on sitting on the throne of David. But, verse 5, if you do not, then this house will become a desolation. So that's where he is so far. Then he turns and he speaks. God speaks through Jeremiah one by one to these last kings of Judah. First he speaks to Josiah's son, Shalom. Starting verse 13. I can read it all, but I read this part of it. To Shalom. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Then he turns, secondly, in verses 18 to 23, to give a word to the king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim ruled for 11 years in Jerusalem until he was killed in a revolt in the year 598 B.C. Starting with verse 18. Therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, oh, my brother, or ah, oh, sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, His Majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. I spoke to you in your prosperity, Shalom. And you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. And then, in verses 24 to 30, he describes the judgment on King Coniah. He became king at the age of 18, and 
He's reigning for three months. And then he surrendered to King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon and was taken away into captivity. And Jeremiah cries out concerning this in verse 28. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. And none of his offspring ever did. The next and last king, Jeremiah, passes over. He didn't say anything about him. It's not Coniah's son. It's the, it's the uncle of Jehoah. What's his name? Jehoiakim. It's the uncle of Jehoiakim who's reigning lastly for 11 years until 586 B.C., when the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple comes in, they kill all of Zedekiah's sons. They pluck out his eyes. They take him and all the people then captive to Babylon. And that's the end of the Jewish monarchy on earth. 586 B.C. Just as Samuel said hundreds of years before it, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And the prophecy goes on, and God through Jeremiah, in chapter 23, 1-2, calls these kings shepherds. And He says this, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and you have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. But all that judgment being wiped out and then carried away from the promised land to which God brought them dispersed abroad into all the other countries and nations does not undo the promise God made with David. In verses 3 to 8, we now see hope. He holds out the hope that of God's people scattered, a remnant of them, a portion of them, will be regathered in the land, in Judah, in Jerusalem. And God will put a new righteous king on David's throne. So I want to deal with this part then for the rest of our time. In this, from verses 3 to 8 of chapter 23 of Jeremiah, this promise has two halves. The first half 
is the regathering of God's people scattered through the Babylonian captivity back into the land. And then the second half of the promise that we see here is the enthronement of a king in David's line who will execute righteousness, justice, save his people. So first, let's go to the first half, the regathering into the line. Verses 3 and 4. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And jump to verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. No. But instead they'll say this, As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. There's Jeremiah's prophecy. It all came about. The Babylonians came in. He was before that happened, and he lived a little longer after it happened. But he's dead now, because after the, at this point, because with the Babylonian captivity happened, 70 years after it. Jeremiah is gone. His prophecy sits. Probably around the year 516 B.C., many of the Jews, those exiled, were returning under the authority that gave them the right, returning into the land of Judah and, and to the city of Jerusalem to slowly rebuild it to rebuild the temple under Ezra, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. So, is that the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy? No. It may be a portion. This whole thing that goes on sometimes with these like twofold kind of meanings, a little bit, but not the whole thing. Maybe, but it can't be the, the, the total final fulfillment of what Jeremiah said in chapter 23, verses 3 to 8. Jeremiah has a picture of freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from dismay. Israel, when they go back, 516, so just think about 500 years before Christ, they're back in the land at that, at, at that point, they're under other people's rule. 
They're not a sovereign nation. I know there's a little teeny little period. It will come a couple hundred years later under the Maccabees for a short little period of time and it's gone again. They're under the rule, being dominated by and ruled by others throughout these centuries from Alexander the Great to the Assyrians and finally the, the Roman Empire while they're in the land. And so, they come back to the land in 500 B.C. And they're there. Jews. A portion of them. A remnant of them. I don't know if you know this, even when Jesus comes, that the majority of Jews lived outside of that land of Palestine. Okay, In the diaspora spread abroad. But it was the Jewish homeland. And they're there even under the Roman Empire. So they're there from 500 B.C. for the next 570 years. Until the year A.D. 70. When Titus, the Roman governor, his army absolutely destroyed and put to the sword and to death tens of thousands of Jews and drove them totally out of Jerusalem and the land. Just as Jesus prophesied about 37 years before it happened. No Jewish homeland. And it remained that way for the next 1,878 years. The Jews lived in what is called the diaspora, the dispersion throughout all the world. Country after country after country, Jewish populations, and amazingly, if not miraculously, they kept their identity. Whether they're in Germany, in America, in African countries, in India, in Persia, you go on and on. They lived in all these places, spoke these languages, and yet they were Jews. And I say for 1,878 years because in 1948, right after World War II, there was an unprecedented establishment of modern Israel as an independent nation state. And from that, after the horrific evil of the Jewish Holocaust, Jews from around the world, whoever wanted to, could come and become part of this Jewish independent country state that ruled itself. They had been doing it and still do it today. But modern Israel is also, if anything, only a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. And the reason I say that is this. You know, if God let Jeremiah come back, say he's just doing whatever he's been doing for all these thousands of years, not watching human history, and Jeremiah comes back and we say, Jeremiah, your prophecy in 23, 3-8 to has been fulfilled. Look, the Jews from the diaspora from all over the world have gathered back to the homeland as a people sovereignly ruling themselves. Isn't this what he said? 
I think he would say, Yes, but where's their king? Where's the righteous branch, the son of David? And we'd have to say, well, okay, I know you haven't been here for a while, but okay, here, here's, here's the reality. The vast majority of Jewish people don't believe in Him. Not only that, probably at least half of them don't even believe in God's existence. They're either atheist or agnostic. And then the many who are religious have been rejecting David's son, the Messiah, since the first century. And I think Jeremiah would say, then, you, you mean to say to me, they've come back to the land without their king? That's what God gave me to say. They presume to dwell in the security of the land without the Christ. They're seeking to justify themselves. You mean to say they're living in the land in rebellion against the righteous branch, the son of David, the king of Israel. You call that fulfillment? Jeremiah, Jeremiah might say, I call it idolatry. We're just back to where we started almost when I prophesied. And Jeremiah would be absolutely right. Because he did not prophesy only about the land, but also verses 5 and 6 of chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, the king, will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. And as we saw last week, Jesus, born of Mary, is this King. And like Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, prophesied 2,000 years ago, Months before Jesus' birth, he said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Jeremiah said that his name would be Yahweh. Personal name of the God of Israel. Of the only creator. Yahweh is our righteousness. And the Apostle Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who God made, He made, God made Jesus our wisdom. Made Him our righteousness. And this means that God and God alone can save and vindicate and justify His sinful people. And He will do it through the King. Christ. Yahweh our righteousness. Christ our righteousness. And therefore people, any people, Jew or Gentile, must find righteousness between them and God. Or they're only going to find themselves guilty before Him. They must find their righteousness outside of themselves in the other. In and through the Messiah. The Son of David. The King. The Lamb of God. The substitute who takes away the sin of the world. And to reject the king is to reject all hope of righteousness before God. There is no other way. I think a lot of evangelicals today think there is. We worship the same God. There is no other way. Let me ask you a question. Is there any reason why what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago is not true today? When he wrote Romans 10, 1-4, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Jews, his fellow Jews, Paul's a Jew, for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, Christ, Yahweh, our righteousness in seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Judaism and 
every other religion in the world, any of it, even in the name of Christianity, any religion without Christ is an attempt at self-righteousness through the works of the law. And it is in subordination against the Lord our righteousness against the promised King, the Son of David. And even those of us like me who believe in God's miraculous, sovereign, providential hand in modern day Israel being reestablished, we still have much reason to weep at this moment as Jeremiah did and as Paul did. That Israel is forever lost without Christ. Paul emotes in Romans 9 this way, starting with verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my Jewish brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham just because they are His physical offspring. But as the Torah says, through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. So Paul says the word of God is not failed. And as he says that, even then, like himself, there's a remnant. There's thousands and thousands and thousands in the first century Jews believing in the King, the Son of David, Christ, the Messiah. And millions and millions and throughout the last 20 centuries, non-Jews submitting themselves to God's righteousness as a gift. Yahweh, our righteousness. Jews and many more Gentiles at this point 
have been coming to slam on the brakes of trying to establish their own righteousness. Their hearts have been opened up to hear, with ears to hear, the good news of Christ's work on the cross and what it means that Yahweh is our righteousness and we have no righteousness of our own that we want before Him. And it's happening today. Millions, many Jews, many Gentiles have put their hope and their trust in the King of Kings whose name, according to Jeremiah, is Yahweh, our righteousness. So, let me say it this way then, and this is where we're going to go in the next number of weeks as we open up the New Testament and hear these bizarre words, if you don't have context, Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. But what I want to say at this point is, Jesus in His coming is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. But it's not its final consummation. He has come and has been reigning. He's as king, yes, presently, but there's still a not yet aspect. Even till today. But it'll come. And before that even comes, there will come a day when God will draw all Israel, physical Israel, Jews, into the family of Christ. This is how Paul says it in Romans 11, 24-27. For if you, Gentile believer in Jesus, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, not, not the tree of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Israel, but you, you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and God grafted you, contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive tree, the Jews. How much more will these Jews, that is the natural branches, how much more will they be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, Gentile Christian, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial Hardening of the heart has come upon Israel. Not forever. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written in Isaiah 59, 
the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's going to do it. Broken off Jews, branches, will be grafted back into the righteous branch of David, his greater son. It does not mean that, that, that every Jew who has ever lived will be saved by Jesus. But this is what I'm really strongly convinced of. But that in the future, when this happens, th there's a time coming when the Jews, the people as a whole, will turn unprecedentedly and dramatically to their Messiah, the Son of David, Jesus, the crucified one. The prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, foretold it this way in chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. The series is called God's Purpose in Redemptive History. He knows what He's doing. And when He promises that He'll do that, it cannot not happen. He will do that. And He will get the glory. As much as He's getting the glory for non-Jews being saved. This is God's redemptive history. And so, the way I began, I want to close. Ask yourselves, where do you stand in relationship to Jeremiah's prophecy? That God would raise up for David a righteous branch. Jeremiah's word of hope has not fallen, as Paul says. The king has come the first time, and he will come back. But he came the first time, as Isaiah prophesied, as the suffering servant to die for sins and to be raised from the dead. And He is now, presently, this moment, pouring out the Holy Spirit in this world. So ask yourself the question, have you been or are you being moved by the Spirit? To abandon your self-righteousness and rebellion towards the King. 
but move to cry out to Christ for righteousness that he lived where you couldn't. And trust that as he was pinned to the cross, your guiltiness, your sin, was reckoned upon Him and punished forever. If that's you, if so, you say, yes, God's mercy has opened my heart to that, then you are directly related and caught up into the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah from 2,600 years ago. Yahweh, Christ, my righteousness. You've been grafted into the righteous branch. And one day, that same Holy Spirit will sweep over the Jewish people and graft them into the body of Christ. And then the King, the Son of David, He will come back bodily in His immortality and resurrection and He will rule over His kingdom forever and ever and ever. Praise God. So let's sing to this One who sits right now on the throne. Oh, Father, You are good. You are wonderful. Your Son is our King. Christ Jesus, You willingly came and became one of us. And you laid down your life for your sheep. Because you are the not just a shepherd, but you're the great shepherd. Oh, you were good. Oh, Jesus, to you, our great Savior who sits upon the throne. Amen. Let us stand now.